This is a podcast from the Washington Post Live Global Women's Summit with presenting sponsors AARP, Boston Consulting Group, the Pharmaceutical Research and Manufacturers of America, and TIAA. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Hello, I'm Sarah Ellison, a staff writer here at The Post, and I am thrilled to be joined virtually by the Hollywood Woman of the Hour, Fran Drescher. Welcome, Fran. Well, you have had quite a few months. Um, I'm wondering if you could just take the audience back to the summer, to the beginning of all of this in July. What were the issues that were on the table that, and what was at stake that caused the entirety of the union to go on strike for 118 days? Well, we actually were in a negotiation with the AMPTP negotiators, not the CEOs, for 35 days, which included an unprecedented 12-day extension with the hopes that we would be able to avert a strike. But I had identified that there was a disconnect between the contract that we were trying to improve and the new business model of streaming. And so together with Duncan Crabtree Island and our uh, negotiating staff and our negotiating committee, uh, we came up with the proposal that would offer the performers that are working on the digital streaming platform a new stream of money to compensate for the losses that they were experiencing when television moved from linear TV to a domination of a streaming television. And for 35 days, we said we needed to get this new stream of revenue. We had to get money out of another pocket. And in the 11th hour of the extension, I said, we're going to have to go over your heads. We have to speak to your bosses. Because all they kept saying was no. And all we kept saying was, well, it's not going away. It's going to remain on hold. And we're going to have to deal with it. And so this became a bone of contention. Yet it was one of the centerpieces of the negotiations. And so Duncan and I called several of the CEOs and said, look, if you want to avert a strike, we don't care what the mechanism is. We don't even care what the money is, but we must get into a new pocket of revenue to compensate for the losses that have been experienced by our members by transitioning into the uh, streaming SVOD model. Mm -hmm. And they said no. So there was really no choice. The clock ran out and we went on strike. Uh, and on uh, July, July 14th, we were officially on strike. And we said that we want to continue talking to you, but they didn't talk to us. They didn't talk to us until early October. And I think that they were hoping to 
either back us into a corner or break our resolve or hoping that they would resolve with the WGA and then we would just fall in line. Mm -hmm. But um, much to their surprise, they were dealing with a different kind of leadership in both myself as national president and Duncan Crabtree Island as national uh, executive director and chief negotiator. And we really stood firm because this was a very logical argument that had to be addressed. And the speech that I made uh, rang like a bell around the world. And ultimately, they had to hear it. And eventually, they did hear it. And they came up with their own mechanism by way, uh, by means of offering more money to the people that were working on that platform. It wasn't as elegant. It really wasn't what we had hoped for. But after three different versions that we kept offering them and them getting up and, you know, deciding that they weren't going to continue with negotiations, they broke negotiations at one point for two weeks. Uh, we realized that what they had come up with as a result of what we were insisting upon was something that we probably were going to have to work with and make fit our agenda if we wanted to advance on the new stream of money coming from a new pocket. And um, that was something that was necessary that the money that was acquired would go into a fund so that we could throw it over a wider net of performers. And they rejected the fund notion. They just wanted to give a uh, added bonus to a thimble worth of shows. And although I agree that the performers on those shows should get a nice bonus because in the linear television world, they would have been in syndication. And in the vacuum box of uh, streaming, there is no syndication. Right. There is no tail. So until they came in, until they accepted that it was of when they gave us that best, last, you know, whatever, uh, I said, I, I, I was in the room with them when they said it, best, last, final. And I said, I understand what those words mean. I hear you loud and clear, but I'm just letting you know that without the fund, yeah, that's the yeah. deal breaker. Right. Um, and, but talk about no rest for the weary. Your work is still not done. You're in LA because you had to present the contract to your members and they are gonna have to ratify it. Um, your partner in this, who you referenced earlier, said that, it, that as, as good as this contract is, it's not perfect. Um, to you, what are the parts of it that aren't perfect and how did the membership react? Well, I think for the most part, the membership is very, uh, excited by the contract and relieved that the strike is over. Uh, and 
they appreciate that we, for the first time, filled blank page after blank page after blank page with new language that had never been there before, namely a new stream of revenue, breaking pattern with the other unions on minimums, and uh, adding AI to uh, the contract, adding new language for casting regulations, which kind of went off the rail during COVID, and as expected, uh, take took advantage of the member body. So I think that for the most part, this is a, a contract that crossed the billion dollar mark, which has never happened before. And we have a lot of reason to be very proud. Performance capture had never been in the contract before for 20 years. Right. They were fighting right. to get that in the contract. So I think that, you know, as, as Lincoln said, you can't please all the people all the time. And there are always going to be those uh, naysayers who feel like their issue we couldn't get. Right. And uh, our feelings are, let's get language on the page. Let's get as much as we can get. And then we'll go back. But if there's no language on the page, there's nowhere to start to build. And so uh, that was the feeling of our negotiating committee who uh, passed when the final two pieces were put in place in like the 11.9 hour, uh, we passed it without objection. Yeah. It was because the last two things came in and that was uh, the last piece of IA and the fund for the bonus um, model of extra revenue. Um, you were something of a sort of unusual labor leader. I think most of the people in the audience probably remember you um, as Fran Fine and from the nanny, but you said multiple times throughout these negotiations that you didn't need to bring male energy in order to sit at this negotiating table. And you had said at one point that you could still rock a red lip. Um, <laughs> I'm, on reflection, what did you mean by that? And do you think that your mostly male um, negotiators across the table from you treated you differently because you were a woman? Did you face sexism at the table? I can't say that I face sexism at the table per se, but I feel like um, the 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 whole way they engineered the narrative from their point of view was to diminish me as a woman leader. At first, they tried to suggest that I was being too aggressive in the room. Then when that really didn't work, they tried to suggest that I was too frivolous in the room. And ultimately, I saw it as an opportunity to start the conversation uh, as a movement for women and girls that I don't have to emulate male energy to lead, that I can lead with intellect and empathy and dignity and morality and I can be me and still rock a red lip. And um, <laughs> so, 
So this strike came amid what has become known as hot labor summer. Um, and you weren't the only, you know, there was the writer's strike, which ended before your strike. And then we also saw the United Auto Workers. Um, what do you think has created this moment, this tipping point in the labor movement? I think it became a little bit of like the emperor's new clothes. Because when I made my speech, I specifically spoke to workers around the world. I wanted to put it into a larger picture that what was happening to us was happening to workers everywhere. And even though we were able to get a kind of press coverage because of the nature of our industry, we were standing on the front lines speaking for everyone. And that the, with the advent of AI, it was very important that as a, a labor force that we stand behind our convictions and that we make it known that we are not going to put our livelihoods in jeopardy because of AI. Over and over again, we've seen through the 20th century that new invention doesn't necessarily get introduced with the foresight required to anticipate what the negative ramifications of it might be. And for that reason, we see all kinds of problems globally, including massive environmental problems and species collapses. This is because of uh, human intervention and invention that gets imposed upon culture and society. And so at some point, I think that we have to start looking at things differently. And we have to actually think that, first of all, who are we getting these inventions from? And are they people that incorporate empathy and spirituality in their invention? Because if they don't, it may not be actually what we need. It may seem enticing, but in the long run, is it something that we need? Is it going to help society at large? Is it going to help people live a decent life and put food on the table and raise their families and pay rent? These are things that need to be considered. And I was hoping that by putting it into this context that I could also uh, elevate the conversation to changing what the word success means in business, that no longer should it be the bottom line is the bottom line in a dog-eat-dog -dog culture, which was very prevalent in the 20th century, but to start having a renaissance of thinking whereby the word success in business and every decision that's made is in harmony with empathy and spirituality. Um, we're almost out of time, but I want to ask you again, you know, most of the people in the audience before this moment knew you as the beloved Francis Fine. Um, and we've gotten to see a totally different side of you. I'm wondering, do you, how would you like to be remembered best? 
Well, I think that um, I think that being in leadership has always been something that I've naturally gravitated towards. Even being a celebrity, for me, leveraging my celebrity on behalf of the greater good was always an imperative. I'm a cancer survivor and I started the Cancer Schmancer movement because I didn't want what happened to me to happen to other people by means of misdiagnosis and mistreatment. But that eventually morphed into uh, challenging how we look at our body and how we live and how the environment that we uh, create for ourselves in our home could be impacting our health. And I was a victim of a violent crime, and I spoke very candidly about that in my book. And so that people could read it who are going through things, because let's face it, no one leaves this planet unscathed, and see that bad things happen to good people. And if she could survive, maybe I could find the courage to do it as well. And when I wrote the book, Cancer Schmancer, I also wanted people to realize that it's a journey when, you know, when you're going through the depths of despair, side by side with grief lies joy. And it's important that we muster our courage to find even the simplest, tiny miracles that abound each and every day so the, the grief doesn't consume us. That takes a lot of fortitude. And I go to the mat over and over again for people that are being marginalized, for people whose civil liberties are being compromised, for arts and education, for environmental issues. And I was successful in getting a bill passed in Washington by unanimous consent when all 100 senators said yes to the Gynecologic Cancer Education and Awareness Act. And that turned into the vetted position of public diplomacy envoy for health issues where I was sent to our allied nations and military bases around the world to speak on health and self-empowerment of your body. And so it just felt like all of my accomplishments had led me to this one defining moment when I was asked to run for president of the union and never anticipating that it was going to mushroom into something of this magnitude. But I feel like I rose to the task and quite honestly, I don't believe I could have done it without my Buddhist wisdom, which I brought into my negotiating committee every single day, as well as my negotiations with the CEOs of the AMPTP. And everybody kind of had to adjust to the fact that I was always putting what we were doing in the context of this historic moment where we all have a responsibility for the future and to always be mindful of not having ego in this negotiation but actually extending a sense of kindness and mindfulness for yourself, 
and then extend that to others. And I always allowed people the room, as I do for myself, to air because that is what, uh, you know, it is to be human. And uh, if you're mindful of what you did, the universe will offer you another opportunity to respond to it again in uh, maybe a different way because we're all on our journey of self-refinement. And sometimes we have a reflexive response that's not the best response. But if you're mindful of it, you look at it, you ask yourself, why was this presented to me? Where was the opportunity? Did I fail? And if I think I could have done it better, then I decide right there and then, next time this opportunity arises, I'll try it differently. And I gave everybody room to grow through this experience. Spoken like a truly powerful woman. Thank you so much. Uh, Madam President of the Union, Fran Drescher, thank you for being with us. Thank you, thank you so much. I so appreciate it. The following segment was produced and paid for by a Washington Post Live event sponsor. The Washington Post newsroom was not involved in the production of this content. Well, uh, Elizabeth and I were saying uh, it's not easy to follow Fran Jesher, but that is a great act to follow. And now we're going to talk about health care, which is equally as important. Um, listen, skyrocketing out-of-pocket health care costs and the need to secure prior authorizations from insurance companies means Americans are spending more time at the pharmacy, more money, and more time at the pharmacy and on the phone with insurers. The burden is even greater for women who pay tens millions more in out-of-pocket costs than men, and they spend more time making healthcare decisions for their families. Now, we all know about middlemen, such as pharmacy benefit managers, who have enormous influence over which drugs are prescribed to patients and how much patients pay at the pharmacy counter. To discuss the barriers that middlemen create to access and affordability and what a patient-centric U.S. healthcare system should look like, I'm joined by Elizabeth Carpenter, Executive Vice President for Policy and Research at Pharma. Elizabeth, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So I was reading your bio and I said to you, you know, you've spent your entire career in healthcare policy and now you're in big pharma. So how do you make that switch? Yeah, um, you're not the first person to ask me that question, mm -hmm. believe it or not. Um, and you're right, when I look back over the 20 plus years in my career, I've had a lot of roles where I've been very neutral, right? I've worked across stakeholders, across issues, and really on the heels of the Inflation Reduction Act and the price setting provisions, I realized that as a woman, as a mother, as a daughter, that the future of the biopharmaceutical market you know, really means something. I mean, think about it. Um, between uh, over the past 20 years or so, the death rate from breast cancer has gone down 42%. And that's not just because of medicines, but certainly the fact that our therapies are so much more targeted now has played a really big role. As a mom, this one means a lot to me, the prevalence of HPV, 
among teenage girls in this country has gone down 86% since the vaccine. 86%. Since the vaccine hit the market, right? So when I take a step back, you know, I recognize that my health plan is not going to save my life. Um, and it's probably not a stretch to think that one of my member companies might. Um, and if it's not me, maybe it's, it's one of my family members. So you have all these member companies. What are you finding from them about the, the patient and caregiver experience? I mean, what are their biggest concerns? Because we always talk about, you know, the patient itself, but about your company's concerns and, and how in particular this all impacts women. Yeah. So, you know, the reality is that many Americans, almost 60% of Americans, are worried about their out-of-pocket costs. So that's not what we're paying monthly for premiums. That's what we're spending when we go to the doctor's office or the pharmacy counter or the like. And as you pointed out, um, that really disproportionately impacts women. A recent study by Deloitte found that women working, right, working women, spend $15.4 billion more annually in out-of-pocket costs. And I was really floored by this. And I would say, it's not just because we have babies, ladies. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's also because it's recommended that we have annual screenings earlier and, and, and the like. Yep. And so, you know, we're here today talking about out-of-pocket costs and medicines. And you really can't have that conversation without talking about pharmacy benefit managers or, or PBMs. And so, you know, a few things I, I would throw out there um, that are just important for all of us to know as we have this conversation. Um, one, these entities are powerful, right? The three largest PBMs, they make up 80% of the market. And increasingly, they are part of these vertically integrated healthcare organizations that own not just a PBM, but an insurer, sometimes the pharmacy, and increasingly physicians. So it's right? like a little cabal. Right. <laughs> the, the nexus of power there, you know, because of consolidation is really significant. So that's one thing. You know, another thing, um, you know, just to keep in mind is that PBMs really drive um, what you pay at the pharmacy counter, right? And you know they decide sort of what medicines are covered and how much you pay. And you know let's pay a little bit of of an example, right? The the incentives that PBMs uh, you know really face are they they prefer when a drug price is higher. Right? Their incentive is aligned to what we would call a higher list price. Now, I'm not an economist, but an actor in the healthcare system having incentive for drug prices to be higher doesn't feel like a recipe uh, for a well-functioning market. So let's take an example. Let's say a drug is $100, right? And I am the PBM, and I go out there, and I work with the manufacturer, and I negotiate what's called a rebate. And that rebate is 50%, right? $50, which, by the way, is very common, rebates of 50%. And so, Elise, I'm going to ask you a question. You are a patient. You are going to the pharmacy counter. Uh, and you are in your deductible. 
The question I would ask you is how much do you think you're paying out of pocket for your medicine? $100 or $50? I'm bad at math, but I know I'm paying the $100 because I'm not getting the rebate. That's right. So one of the... the... And this was not rehearsed, by the way. I'm, I'm just, I, I saw it coming. This is one of the things that we'll talk about more, but certainly, you know, these entities, again, the, the incentives are messed up. Uh, to prefer sort of these higher list price medicines. And then as they negotiate savings, um, they are not, you know, sharing them with the patient. So, and it makes harder for patients to get the medicines that they need because the doctor is supposed to tell you what medicine you need. But then, you know, these PBMs are saying, uh-uh, not so fast. Yeah, so there's a few things to talk about here, right? So PBMs decide what medicines are covered and sort of to go back to the messed up incentives, right? Um, you know, uh, they have an incentive to prefer drugs with higher list prices, right? And so for you as a patient, one, that may mean a medicine that you need isn't covered at all. In other cases, that medicine um, you know, really may, may cost you more, right, for all of the reasons we, we just described. I would also say that there is use of something called utilization management, right? And so what is utilization management? Those are the hoops, for lack of a better term, uh, that all of us really jump through in order to get access to medicines. So in some, case, in some cases, that could mean things like um, you know, having a special prior authorization form uh, from your doctor. In some cases, it could mean, um, you know, proving that you had failed another therapy before you get the therapy that your doctor has prescribed. And as women in this room, um, this is something we should think about because women make unsurprisingly, 80% of the healthcare decisions on behalf of their family. So all of these hoops, uh, these are our hoops. And these are time that we're all spending on the phone. You got it. Insurance. You got it. And, and honestly, you know, one of the things is that, um, you know, we go to the doctor and we think what medicine we take is a decision that we're making with our physician. And the reality is it's that, not. you know, the PBMs are in the middle of this too. Yeah, and I imagine we're paying more for the medicine, but I imagine for the for the drug companies, it it cuts costs. You can't spend as much on R and D and and innovation. Yeah, you know, I think if we take away anything from this discussion, we should really take away the fact that we need to create a system that is aligned to patients and aligned to innovation. And I think the reality is there's a cost uh, associated with that. I mean, just as we close out, something I would flag, you know, the number one killer of women is cardiovascular disease, right? If we had more women and, and people in Medicare adherent to medicines that controlled their high blood pressure, we'd save $14 billion a year. All right, last question. How do you change the system to achieve more patient-centric healthcare where we're getting better access that we can afford and we're getting the drugs that we need? Yeah, this tells me I have one minute and we definitely don't have time for the whole picture, so I'll <laughs> leave you uh, with two things that uh, you know are really being debated right now on Capitol Hill. Um, one, really severing the tie 
uh, between the money PBMs make and the list price of a medicine. It doesn't mean PBMs can't compete and make money, but they shouldn't make money based on the list price of drugs. And the second piece is really to start sharing some of those savings that PBMs are negotiating. Um, you know, patients should, should share in those savings at the pharmacy counter. How's the outlook? You know, it is dangerous to make political prognostications right now, but I would say we have bipartisan support uh, for these issues right yeah, now. And, there's one thing um, bipartisan. You know, something to watch for sure. Yeah. All right, well, look, eliminating the barriers to coverage like these middlemen and taking them out of the conversation between us, the patient, and the doctors not only gets us the medicine we need, but also at a price we can afford. Elizabeth Carpenter, Vice President for Policy and Research at Pharma, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Thank you. And now, back to Washington Post Live. Hi, everybody. It's an incredible privilege to be sitting here now with these two remarkable power women. On far end here, our British ambassador to the U.S., Dame Karen Pierce. In her four-decade diplomatic career, she's worked closely on the response to the 9-11 attacks and the peace process to end the Bosnian War. She's served as the British ambassador to Afghanistan and as the permanent representative to the U.K. mission to the United Nations. And she's a good friend. And ditto Jane Hartley, who had a stellar career as founder and CEO of a global advisory firm before being appointed by President Obama as U.S. ambassador to France and then tapped by President Biden as the U.S. ambassador to the court of St. James, an incredible diplomatic twofer. So welcome to you both. So Dame Karen, just yesterday... Big news, right? Gobsmacking news, as a matter of fact, because former Prime Minister David Cameron, now Lord Cameron, suddenly steps out of a car outside Downing Street. Everybody's astounded to hear that he's the new Foreign Secretary. So talk about it. I mean, what was in Rishi Sunak's mind, this very extraordinary new appointment? Well, I think it's a great appointment given all the challenges we face in the world at the moment. Uh, it's enabling the prime minister to have the cabinet he needs to help tackle the domestic and the international challenges. Uh, very sorry to lose James Cleverly, who was a great friend of America, uh, but he's needed at the Home Office, uh, particularly on the issue of migration. Uh, David Cameron knows a huge number of world leaders. Uh, he's dealt with a lot of problems that have led to some of the challenges we see today. He dealt with ISIS, he chaired a G7, actually I think a G8 summit uh, in 2013. Uh, on very close terms with lots of world leaders. I think it gives the Foreign Office itself an extra oomph. Uh, and I think he's going to be a great figure on the world stage in support of Rishi. Yeah, I mean, it was actually a, a very sort of um, ballsy, if I may say, decision of, of, the, of the Prime Minister to bring in someone of that. Uh, shows confidence. It does show a lot of confidence, yeah, although, of course, Rishi. the right wing are not very happy about it because of the... Uh, well, mm -hmm. it will be very interesting to see how it plays out, let's put it that way. So... Um, of course, Cameron immediately is going to be uh, confronted by the huge Israeli Hamas crisis. Um, I mean, you've had such long experience in wartime diplomacy, Karen. What role do you think Britain can play in sorting, trying to sort out any sort of solution? Um, I, I think the, the best role Britain plays is problem solving and burden sharing. Uh, you can't solve big problems like this without US leadership. Uh, and I'd like to salute the leadership the President and Secretary Blinken have been showing. Um, we have a deep history uh, in the Middle East uh, for good and bad. Uh, we can bring that to bear. Uh, we have the relationships that David Cameron and prior to that, 
James Cleverly had made. Uh, and we do a lot of thinking about how to solve this sort of problem. We've got a lot of experience. Uh, we have a great many experienced diplomats who've made the Middle East their career anchors. Uh, so I'm hopeful that we can work with the Americans, work with the UN, work with the region itself uh, to try and bring some shape to this, to try and get the humanitarian aid in, uh, get the hostages out while supporting Israel's right to defend itself within international law. Well, Jane, as we speak, tens of thousands of people are about to march in support of Israel here in Washington. And, of course, on Saturday, there were 300,000 mm -hmm. who took to the streets in a mm -hmm. massive sort of pro-Palestinian march. Mm -hmm. It was actually a peaceful march, but it was a very you know, amazing turnout. Um, you know, for the American ambassador to be there, you know, of a staunchly pro-Israel administration, you know, how, how are you sort of navigating this? Have there been dozens of dissent cables, I know, in, in uh, uh, the channels of dissent within the Foreign Office mm -hmm. protesting, you know, the mm -hmm. need, of course, for, uh, uh, you know, a, a ceasefire. I mean, for you, it's, 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 it's very, it must be difficult to navigate on the ground. Yeah, it, it has been a difficult time. Um, in, ter in terms of the marches, first of all, we did have, um, I think it was 300,000 ending up at the U.S. Embassy on Saturday. Um, but it was peaceful. It was peaceful. And I am sure in London we will have many more. Um, I believe in free speech and I believe in the right to protest as long as it's peaceful um, and not hateful. To your second point, it's difficult. It's tough. You know, I, um, I uh, see the dissent cables coming out of state. And by the way, I've got to commend Tony Blinken, who sent out a note yesterday or the day before saying he understands how people feel and uh, please keep communicating. Mm -hmm. This is difficult, though. You know, if you think, and I, I feel it personally, if you think about the State Department, uh, people go into the State Department, they go into the Foreign Service to be diplomats. They go in to be diplomats because they think diplomacy works. They go in to make sure diplomacy works to get to peace. Um, and, you know, I've served in, as you said, I've served under President Obama as ambassador to France, serving under President Biden now, and I served in the White House long ago. Uh, people go into government to try to make the world a better place. So for many of the people in the State Department and many of the people in my own embassy, um, this is very, very difficult. Now, we can't lose sight of the fact that Israel was attacked. And we can't lose sight of the fact that this was a terrorist attack by a terrorist group. Um, and I think both President Biden and um, you know, Secretary Blinken are you know, really trying to thread that needle. President Biden said, I think, last night you know, that he was, I'm not sure if this is the right word, um, that re restraint should be used, especially um, in terms of hospitals and to protect hospitals. Um, I think President Biden and, and Tony Blinken uh, are, are listening to people. Having said that, once again, if you live in Israel and you live two miles from that border where you have Hamas, which is a terrorist group that's pledged to destroy Israel, um, they have a right to defense. As Tony Blinken said, how they do it is important. And I also think, you know, going forward, as we move to a two-state solution, how they do it is important as well. Well, you, of course, were chairman of Sesame Street. So, uh, I mean, there's a lot of children who are dying in, in Gaza. Listen, uh, I, I was with the... Um, 
Darren Walker, your friend, Ford Foundation, and uh, the president of Sesame Street were over in London last week, and we were talking about what we could do uh, in terms of the phil philanthropically together, together for children. It's very hard for me. I mean, Sesame Street had a program um, that worked closely with refugee children, um, supported by a MacArthur grant in a partnership with the IRC, the first ever. This is, it's, it's, this is very difficult. I do believe that Tony Blinken and President Biden are navigating this better than anybody else could, because by the way, they see the difficulty. Mm -hmm. Well, of course, one of the things that constantly happens when you are an ambassador is that these enormous crises blow up and the other priorities get, you know, to try to, to work on the proactive priorities is, becomes a real heavy lift because the focus is gone. So, but you've also, of course, a lot of your time has been spent on strengthening economic ties, I know, in the, in the UK. Boris Johnson, <coughs> you know, promised that the prize of Brexit was going to be a free trade agreement with the US, which evaporated. Uh, but talk about the new pact that you did manage to get signed, which is this new economic pact, the Atlantic. Yeah, I mean, listen, President Biden has been to the UK five times, four times since I've been ambassador. The UK is extremely important. The special relationship is real. Um, and we work on challenges like Ukraine in particular, where the UK has really led the mm -hmm. way. Um, but in June, Karen was there, uh, the president and the prime minister had a meeting at the White House, um, and out of that came the Atlantic Declaration, which talked about how we can have more secure supply chains, how we can work together in terms of um, skilled employment, um, and talk about some things that um, we've been talking about, uh, the two countries have been talking about in terms of, with USTR and others in terms of what we do on small and medium-sized businesses. Can we make it easier for them to do business across the Atlantic on both sides? Mm -hmm. You know, we do, it, I just looked at this the other day, which I was surprised. I was doing a speech for BAB, British, mm -hmm. British mm -hmm. American Business. Trade is up 25% mm -hmm. um, since COVID. Mm -hmm. which I'm, I'm really somewhat surprised. Um, and listen, there, we are talking constantly. I think there's a meeting in early December, which will be the second meeting, I think it's early December, of the Atlantic Declaration in terms of what we can do. Our vice president was just over in terms of the AI summit. Um, had a, um, I was in a bilat with... Uh, Prime Minister Rishi, and uh, and then um, she had a private dinner with him, and was part of the the summit itself. And I give the UK government huge credit for doing that summit. I think it was well done. And that's another area mm -hmm. we know we have to work together on it. Well, tell me, Karen, um, President Xi and Biden are meeting tomorrow. Uh, when David Cameron was Prime Minister, he was very gung ho on China. Uh, UK relations. I mean, you know, he called it a golden era, I think, of, of China-UK uh, relations. Does, does Cameron now taking over as foreign minister, do you think that, that there will be a greater emphasis on more outreach with China through? I, I think the relationships with China, both for the US and the UK, um, are evolving slightly 
as we try and make the most of the cooperate where we can strand, uh, which both President Biden and Rishi Sunak uh, believe in. And that's obviously on things like climate uh, with the COP28 summit coming up. It's on things like global health. Uh, it may be that out of the Xi Biden meeting, we'll see cooperation on fentanyl, uh, which is a huge problem uh, here in, uh -huh. in the US. Uh -huh. uh, and we have our share of that, though we have some of the slightly different uh, issues. But I think David Cameron was very clear yesterday when he was appointed. He said he had disagreed uh, with Rishi Sunak uh, in some policy areas, uh, but also that his own views uh, had evolved in the time since he was prime minister. And I think he would say the situation with China, with the Uyghurs, with what happened over COVID, uh, that illustrates just how far away, if you like, uh, China has moved from what you might think of as a global norm. Uh, and I think David Cameron's policies will absolutely uh, reflect that. Uh, and I think he'll be a great support to the prime minister on China as well. Um, well, Karen, of course, you know, you, you've took over, you know, the, the embassy. Uh, uh, you've had a, been through an extraordinary time, really, because you got here in the Trump time and then there was COVID. Um, but talk about being the British ambassador during January the 6th. Because, I mean, what a day, right? <laughs> it, it was a day. Um, amazingly, we, we, were having, um, Take we were back having in your a memory. leadership meeting. You know, embassies yeah. like to have these, these things like away days and, and leadership meeting. Uh, and it took a while for us to realise what was going on through in a completely different part of, of the embassy. Um, but I think, and, uh, and the Prime Minister at the time uh, said this, to think uh, of what was happening in the capital um, with all its um, Palladian Roman splendour. You know, it actually, it absolutely embodies Western democracy. And to think of an assault happening on that building of all buildings uh, and in those circumstances, um, I think we were worried, uh, not about the resilience or the power of America, uh, just that it seemed to be not a symbol, but it seemed to be a commentary uh, on, on mm. how divisive uh, politics had become. Uh, and we did watch very worried as, as the attacks took place, trying to find Speaker Pelosi as it was then. Uh, we watched very carefully what Vice President Pence was doing. Um, we were very sorry to see the injuries and deaths that resulted from that. Um, and, but at the same time, I think we all had a confidence uh, that the American institutions would reassert themselves. Uh, and I think that's what's happening. I mean, the other th thing that really sort of struck me about your, your tenure was that, you know, you are very well known for your, your tradecraft and your kind of social outreach, Karen. And so you took over during COVID. You couldn't be you, right? I mean, because they were in lockdown. How did you sort of penetrate the Washington networks without being able to be, uh, you know, this kind of so very socially deaf person that everyone knows you to be? Uh, well, it really, it really worried me, to be, to be honest. You know, how on earth do you get impact when you're new and you've been locked up uh, for two weeks because of quarantine and then lockdown? Uh, and I do think diplomacy uh, is a contact sport. And as Tina says, I'm much better if I can see people 
uh, in person. Uh, so I volunteered for every Zoom event going. <laughs> and you do three or four in a morning. But I was very worried. But to be absolutely honest, bilateral diplomacy is a bit of a competition. Yeah. You're very conscious that there are always other countries with embassies there. And I thought, oh my goodness, if a Middle East ambassador rings up or a European ambassador rings up, the administration know who they are. The think tanks know who they are. The media knows who they are. And I've arrived and nobody knows me. Uh, so as I say, I set out consciously uh, to get on as many Zooms as possible. And how did it work for you? I mean, did you, did you, did it, did it work? I mean, this Zoom offensive, you and the Queen, right? I mean, the Queen was always on Zoom. Always. Uh, the Queen was just by phone. I did not do a Zoom with the Queen, but I did have a very good conversation with her. Um, she reads all the cables, or read, I should say, uh, all the cables that the embassy produced. And not many people know, but when she was a child, alongside being taught English constitutional history, uh, as you'd expect, um, the person, the master at Eton who taught her that uh, was also an American history specialist. Uh, so he threw in American history uh, into her lessons for good measure. Mm -hmm. So she had a really good understanding of America. And we had this great conversation about American politics. Mm -hmm. She asked some pretty tough questions. How incredible. Jane, I mean, you know, talking about the Queen, I mean, no sooner did you arrive in London when Queen... The Queen Elizabeth died, Boris Johnson was tossed out, Liz Truss was a flyby prime minister <laughs> before being replaced by Rishi Sunak. I mean, that was like whiplash. Yeah. Talk about those days. Yeah, I got there. I got there for Jubilee, so the Queen was yeah. still alive. Right. Um, and actually, I presented my credentials. It was actually a very funny story. I presented my credentials to the Queen at Buckingham Palace. Um, with all the pomp and circumstance, but it was supposed to be in person. She was not feeling well, so I actually did it on Zoom. Amazing. <laughs> but, that day, but that day was very funny because... <laughs> Were you walking oh, backwards? Yes. Were you walking yes. backwards? I had to do... But I probably shouldn't say this, but I will. It was very funny because the palace was lovely, um, and they wanted to make sure all the pomp and circumstance continued. Um, so they were going to send the horse-drawn carriage to Winfield House to pick me up with my husband. Um, but it was the hottest day in London history, so they were worried about the horses. <laughs> I mean, that's all the Brits ever worry about, so, is the horses. Well, so instead we got into an air, a car that they sent, which was also lovely, that was not air-conditioned. <laughs> and my husband said, they're not very worried about the people. <laughs> Well, I'm afraid that that, that uh, is a great defining right. story. Yes. Um, <laughs> so, but, but it was, yeah, yeah. I arrived. Boris Johnson um, was still prime minister, and I think this is our. I'll never forget. I had, a, I think, a friend of her, somebody you, knew, you clearly know. I had a dinner about a weekend with Mervyn King. He used to be head of the Bank of England, who's an old friend of mine. And he said, I think you're going to serve with three prime ministers, maybe four. And I, <laughs> right. I said, Mervyn, you're crazy. So within a short time, uh, Boris Johnson was gone, and Liz Truss was prime minister for about 44 days, and Rishi Sunak, who I very much enjoy working with. Um, but I did have, uh, when I was leaving, I had a, a, a friend who I had worked with. I was ambassador to France under President Obama, as Tina said. So I had a friend who I'd worked with, who you all know, but I won't give the name, at the Obama White House. And when I was leaving to go to the UK, she said to me, 
you know, you did such a great job in France. It's just diff difficult times. It was a time of terrorism, Charlie Hebdo, Bataclan, Nice, and many more. Um, she said, so I, I just hope you have an easier time in the UK. And she said at the end, and this is a very senior person at the Obama White House, she said at the end, if not, I'm going to think it's you. <laughs> and <laughs> about two months in, I got an email from her saying, it's you. <laughs> <laughs> So, Karen, I mean, uh, both of you, actually, you know, you're, you're both, you know, you're, you're, there's two elections coming, right? Not just the American election, but the British election. So, Karen, I'd like to know from you, okay, like, what is, it, what is this diplomacy like in this election year? I mean, how do you calibrate your work uh, with an administration that's, you know, it's, 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 it's last year, or maybe not, maybe uh, there's another four to go, while kind of surreptitiously getting to know who might be there if the current administration isn't? I mean, is there a lot of sort of double, you know, contact work going on to make sure that everything is secure, whatever happens? Well, we share a lot and our embassies uh, share a lot and we obviously uh, help each other. So there's a mini special relationship between the two uh, embassies. Um, I think if the embassy, any embassy, is doing its job well, we have spotted the people we need to know to keep the relationship going and productive and overcome obstacles and develop new areas. We have spotted them before the election year. And um, we start to make our number uh, with them at all levels uh, in, in the embassy while keeping up uh, relationships, working relationships with the current administration. And I think that applies no matter who's in, whether it's Republicans or Democrats who are actually in power and who's the, the challenger. Might be worth my saying for the audience that I am a career diplomat. Um, so we are very impartial about political parties. Mm -hmm. And of all the things that you've done, really, since you've been ambassador, what do you think, aside from, you know, fire hose, you know, putting out fires, etc., what do you feel has been the thing you've most achieved in the last year, few years, each of you? Uh, well, I hope it's not over yet. You know, I hope there's more uh, to come. Um, Jane mentioned the Atlantic Charter. I think we mm -hmm. both feel uh, that was a very good mm -hmm. move. Uh, the AI Summit. I think the AI Summit is a great example of how you take the special relationship uh, and everybody knows the traditional bedrock, the defence, the security, the intelligence. Uh, what the AI Summit represented was one of those new 21st century issues, uh, AI tech, uh, and showing how the US and the Brits together can forge a common framework to tackle these new challenges. Uh, so I think it's actually a great example and model for how we might do some of this in future. Um, obviously, we've worked together in Ukraine. Uh, and I think keeping us close on Ukraine has been one of the most important things. Quickly, Jane. Um, I would agree with Karen. I mean, first of all, the good news for me, I'm a political ambassador, but a political ambassador cannot, you're supposed to be nonpartisan. That's what you, you're, you know, you're a, you're a diplomat now. So I can't get involved in the campaign. My husband's very happy. I can't get involved in financing any of the campaign or political corporation uh, uh, contributions. Um, Listen, I think it, it, what Karen said, when I first got to the UK, one of my first meetings was with then Secretary Ben Wallace, Secretary of Defense, and how close we were on Ukraine, how much information we shared. Um, 
how much we did together. And frankly, I want to compliment the UK again. I mean, they were first in many things in terms of in terms of one thing, sending tanks into Ukraine a little ahead of us. That was really important for us because you know we need in all of this we need an ally. And if we don't always have to go first. That's really important. And that relationship continues. There's a new Secretary of Defense, Grant Shapps. He's terrific. Um, uh, and that is a really important relationship for us as we go forward on Ukraine. Personally, I care, about, I care a lot about two things. I care about women's empowerment. Um, I just had a dinner for Tory Burch last mm. week, and it was about how to get more small business financing to especially women. When she started her company as successful as she was, she couldn't get financing. Uh, and then the other thing is uh, Northern Ireland. Uh, I went with the president, uh, 25th anniversary, up to Belfast, and have worked closely with Number 10 and the prime minister on the Windsor framework. And once again, to compliment them, them on that, that was a very hard deal that they did really, really well. And I'm Last still working with them on Stormont. We'll see what happens so there. Just, I have one, one final <laughs> question, quickly, one each of what do you most miss about the UK when you're here? And what do you most miss about the US? Because I always felt Transatlantica was the place to, to live, right? English tea, American directness. What do you, what, what, what do you miss quickly? You want me to go first? Yes, you go first. I miss my family, particularly my daughter, who is back in New York, and my twin brother. I miss my friends, Hugh, and all of our mutual friends in New York. And I miss New York pizza. Okay. Uh, so it's pizza from the, from the US, UK. Uh, I miss my children. Yeah. But I love America. Yeah, okay. <laughs> very diplomatic reply. All right. So thank you very much indeed, ladies. Thank you. Really good. Thank you. Uh, it was fun. Really good. Great pizza. To see you. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.